0: John chapter 2 today, we are going to be looking at, in essence, Jesus cleaning house. We don't mean that in the literal sense, although that's going to happen, but in a sort of metaphorical way, cleaning house defined as eliminating corruption or all that is undesirable. Sadly, some of us have been a part of businesses or perhaps companies and they cleaned house and you hope you're not part of the rubbish that goes out. Uh, but many times they come in, had a new person in charge and they clean house. It's just what they do. But in particular, what's happening is Jesus is cleaning house and it's his father's house. It's the time of Passover. This is what would happen during the time of Passover. One of the translators uh, named Dave Guzik writes, cleansing was part of the Passover celebration. In every home, you'd be removing every speck from anything leavened made with yeast Uh, from the home was a symbol and a picture of cleansing from sin. This is what Jewish households did. They removed all the leaven right before Passover because leaven in this sense was a picture of sin. Last week, we saw that our Lord was merciful. He provides wine for a hurting couple getting married. Today, he, he seems to like flip. What's going on here? Well, no, he doesn't flip. It's just a picture that our Lord is also righteous. He demands worship that lines up with the word of God. And this is a warning for all of us today. Beware of misrepresenting Jesus. Uh, we do that in our lifestyles, oftentimes, um, Many of us perhaps are are drawn to the gentle Jesus who turns water into wine for whom children love to sit in his lap, but we fail to note this same Jesus is cleaning house in the temple. As a matter of fact, he, not the father, but Jesus Christ is actually the one who is given the, the charge to judge all mankind one day. He is the one. He is the voice that you will hear as he condemns you to hell for eternity. It's really hard for our minds because we tend to be so drawn to the merciful Jesus. And yet, sadly, we don't also embrace the righteous Jesus who's also just and he must punish sin. So, by the way, one word when we misrepresent Jesus, you know what it's called? It's called idolatry. We're actually not worshiping an accurate picture of who Jesus Christ is. And so we're, we've made him in our own image, how do you prevent this from happening? Let me give you three tools before we even get started. Number one, you should be reading his word. I hope you're spending time in his word and not just his word, but reading about the attributes of God. He's holy and righteous, sovereign, free. There's so many out there, all found in his word. That's the best place to find it. I, I don't normally encourage books, but I will encourage this one. A.W. Pink writes a really good book called The Attributes of God. It's very short, but very poignant and really opened up my eyes because he's very biblical in how he explains God's attributes. You need to know him, not just what the things that you like about him, but the whole breadth of God as much as you can. Number two, I would encourage you to pray. Pray for understanding. Yes, By all means, pray that, Lord, and even confess, I'm sorry, I have made an idol of you because I've been misrepresenting you to the world and to myself for years. And thirdly, I would encourage you to actually live in the body. What I mean by that is that I hope you just don't pray and read scripture and leave it at that. I hope you're living within the body here because we all have something called blind spots where We just don't see it. Just don't understand exactly who the Lord is, but you have other brothers and sisters around you that can point those out and kinda help you as you struggle along with that. None of us is gonna get it perfectly, but we've gotta do better than what we've done in the past. Some of you are limping today spiritually because of what your view of Christ was in the past. So, Jesus is gonna clean house today. Chapter two, this is the word of God, verse 12. And after this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And there they stayed for a few days. Here we have Capernaum. Capernaum is a city on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. Perhaps it is a transliteration, Kaphar Nahum, uh, city of Nahum. Uh, As you know, Nahum was a prophet. Is it referring to that, Nahum? It might be. Nahum's name also means comfort, so you could call it city of comfort. Um, We don't know for certain, but we do know this city became Jesus' adopted hometown. His base of ministry was Capernaum, even though he was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, and... But Capernaum becomes his base of ministry. Verse 13 and 14, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus was up, went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. So we have here the first of three or perhaps four Passovers in the book of John. That's how we know how long Jesus' ministry was. You kind of take note of the Passover feast. Jesus is a faithful Jew. He's not only God, but he's also a faithful Jew, and he's obeying the law. All Jewish men, 20 years old and up, had to report three times a year to the city of Jerusalem Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles. And we know that they reported to Jerusalem because that is the place where the sacrifices were offered. That's where, according to the Old Testament, God, quote, unquote, put his name. That's the city he chose. And so that's where you needed to go. And you may go, well, what if you're living in, I don't know, modern-day Iraq? Or if you're modern-day Greece, do you still travel there three times a year? Oh, yes, you did. Um, Didn't matter. And by this time, remember, the Jews, according to the Babylonian takeover and and the Persian takeover and... Assyrians, they were living in different parts of the empire. They are still under obligation to return there, according to the scriptures. So uh, they're there for the Passover. Just a quick Passover history lesson. It's commemorated the 10th plague when Israel was down in Egypt. That's the night when the angel of death, what? Passed over, over the doors of Egypt. The obedient put blood of the lamb on their doorpost. Those who did not, what happened to them? All of the firstborn in the house were killed, even Pharaoh's son. And at this point, he kicks Israel out of Egypt only to go after them again uh, and later die. Many of them, or rather all the Egyptian army that went after them died in the Red Sea. Now, what temple is this? This was confusing to me as a kid. So, so maybe some of y'all Are much sharper than me, but how many temples were there? Well, there was two, and this is important to note. The first temple was the Temple of Solomon. It stood 370 plus years. This is the second temple. It was built by Zerubbabel after the exile, after they came back. Remember, we studied Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, those books. It stood for 440 plus years, and yet what's interesting is sometimes people say, well, Is that Herod's temple or is it Zerubbabel's? And the answer is they're one and the same. You see, what Herod did after 400 or 300 plus years, he took decades to expand the temple courts and beautify the facility. And so many times they'll call it Herod's temple. It's the same as Zerubbabel's temple, but it's refurbished. Both temples, interestingly enough, both temples were destroyed on the 9th of Av, which is August. Hmm. It's almost like God sovereignly made that the case. Where uh, now the te- what you have a question now is that was there one or two temple cleansings? Because here it looks like it begins with John, but in when the other scriptures of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it looks like it's the end of his ministry. Well, there's some debate in that, and so I've got I'm a firm believer that there were actually two cleansings, but some people would say there's one. Either way is fine. But I'll give you my reasons for saying I think there's two. Uh, first off, number one, the time period. The time period. As I said, this one occurs at the beginning of Christ's ministry, whereas the others occur at the end of his ministry. Well, some might say, if one uh, people that would hold to a one cleansing would say, well, perhaps the Holy Spirit put this one at the beginning of the book in John just to show that, Modern um, first-century legalistic Judaism had no wine. I mean, it was a bankrupt system, and uh, so maybe, maybe the Holy Spirit inspired John to put it at the very beginning of Christ's ministry. Perhaps I don't think so, but but perhaps. Uh, and number two, the language is a little bit different. The cleansing in the Synoptic Gospels—remember Synoptic? Think about perhaps a pair of lens that you put on seen together. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were so similar in the way that they describe Christ's ministry as compared to John's. It's very different. All true, but continuing on, the cleansing in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it adds language. Uh, Jesus says, uh, uh, he refers to, that this, this should be a house of prayer for all nations, and you have made it a den of robbers, that's from Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7. We also see the chief priests and the scribes that are now seeking a way to destroy him. I don't think they were seeking a way to destroy Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. No one really knew who this guy was. So um, it really is the last straw for them. At this point, they're like, we have to kill him. We have to get rid of him. Uh, another reason, number three, are the objects In John's cleansing, we have sheep and oxen. You don't see that in the others. You also have Jesus making a whip of cords. We'll talk about that in a little bit. You don't see those in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then finally, number four, the first five chapters of John are so completely different from the other three gospels. Once again, all true, but John is going to focus on Jesus' Jerusalem ministry, whereas the other three really focus more on his Galilean ministry. Well, then, it, then you have to ask the question why cleanse the temple again? I mean, is there a reason to? It had been three years. <laughs> well, ask yourself that question Why does God still deal with my sin today? I, am I doing the same thing I did three years ago? Um, yeah, uh, perhaps more. So that's what we have here. They're committing the same sins, same sins. Um, I really think the more natural reading is two cleansings, but once again, you can disagree with me, and maybe you're right. Where did this take place? This took place at the court of the Gentiles. Now, the Temple Mount is 37 acres. The court of the Gentiles is the is the furthest court, okay? This is, try to explain this in a way that might be helpful. In the dead center, um, well, in the middle, if you will, of the temple complex was the uh, Holy of Holies. Right outside the Holy of Holies, you have the, um, uh, the holy place. And then you have, if you will, you just keep expanding. Then you've got the priestly courtyard. And then you've got the Israelite courtyard, men of Israel. And then you've got the women's courtyard. And then the biggest one is the Gentiles. But notice how far out it is from the holy place, most holy place, that's intentional, but it's very clear that that was meant to be for Gentiles and, and for others as well, but there they could pray. They could worship the Lord. That's as close as they could get until the time of Christ's death and resurrection regarding the temple, but that, that was a good thing. It was an awesome thing. As a matter of fact, but the Jews didn't like it by and large. Uh, they actually had a fence Uh, It was a a wall, chest high, and it had a warning. I'll read to you the warning, and you go, how would you know what that warning is? It's from at least the first century. Well, there were so many of these that they put around there that some of them have survived. If you ever go uh, to um, modern-day Turkey, you can see a complete one, and it reads this. It reads the following. No foreigner may enter within the balustrade. Balustrade is a row of columns. You cannot enter, cross over. Around the sanctuary in the enclosure, whoever is caught on himself shall be put blame for the death which will ensue. Uh, We would put it like this. It's on you. Uh, In Acts 21, Paul is there with uh, Trophimus, the, uh, the Ephesian. And they, the Jews think that he has just brought him into past the Gentile courts. They beat up Paul, something fierce. And um, it's a terrible scene in Acts 21. And he, Paul had not allowed Trophimus past the court of the Gentiles, but some people thought he may have. And that was enough to get him a beating. Ephesians 2.14, though, says it like this. Christ himself is our peace who has made us both Jew and Gentile, how many? One. And he's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That means a Jewish believer and a Gentile believer are one in Christ Jesus. It's a beautiful thing. Why is Christ so upset? Let's, let's kind of dig into that. Why is he so upset? Well, remember, the court of the Gentiles was supposed to be a place of prayer. They have made it a marketplace. We've got money changers. We've got merchants. And we have animals, lots of animals. And last time I checked, um, oh, sheep, cattle—they don't nudge their owner when they need to go to the outside to the restroom. This is, if you will, this is—they've made it the stockyards, and it's not a pretty place. Now, keep in mind, they used to have the marketplace on the Mount of Olives. Right before Jesus' ministry began, there was a high priest named Caiaphas wicked man, greedy, rich, wicked man, and he decided to allow the market on the court of the Gentiles. Keep in mind, it's the only place the Gentiles could worship and pray. Uh, Why did Caiaphas allow it on the court of the Gentiles? Two reasons. Number one, convenience. Convenience. Remember, pilgrims go to Jerusalem and they're walking with their sacrificial animals yet to be sacrificed. And sometimes they have to travel a great distance. It's a convenient thing to do. So uh, what you'd have is animals had to be, remember, without blemish, and they had to pass an official inspection. And looky here, right on the Temple Mount in the Court of the Gentiles, you have all these animals that have already passed inspection. It's convenient. Another reason, money. How many times have we heard, just follow the money? That's what we have here. You see, these sellers of the animals, they paid the high priest, Caiaphas, for being able to sell at the Temple Mount. What a wicked man Caiaphas is. So when you read his story, as we will, in the crucifixion of Jesus, remember these things. Historically, he was a bad man, as well as spoken of ill of in the gospels. So what does Jesus do? Verse 15 through 17. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Okay, who are the money changers and why are they there? Money changers, the way it worked is that you were required as a 20-year-old Jewish male once a year to pay a half shekel temple tax that helped to upkeep the temple. Uh, A half shekel was roughly two days wages. Um, Why couldn't you just bring your foreign Babylonian money? Well, because much of the coins, if you take a look at your dollar bill today, you're gonna see a person's face on it, a president or something to that effect. But at that time, they would put the face of deities, of gods. And so what they had to do is they had to change out these coins for temple uh, coins. And wouldn't you know, there's a currency exchange, but it has a slight fee, slight fee. And so that's what we have here. So are these money changers corrupt? I would say yes. But I think they get worse. Why? Because in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account, Jesus actually calls them a den of robbers. This has gotten worse. But I think the biggest issue what's going on in John's account is y'all are not supposed to be here. This is the court of the Gentiles. What are you doing here? Money changers, merchants, animals? No. So he overturns the tables. Uh, He sent them all out. But notice what he, uh, to those who sold the pigeons, he says, take these things away. I think that's so fascinating. You don't want to miss this. Compared to the other animals or the coins, once you turn them over, or the animals would would be um, branded of some kind so they would know which ones were theirs. But if you open up the gates and you send out the pigeons, you're not getting them back again. Well, I think that's what Jesus is doing is giving great mercy. He doesn't ever open up the cages. He says, take them away. Shows great mercy. And he says at this point, do not make my father's house a house of trade. Why does he refer to it as my father's house? Well, number one, because it is. But number two, I think he's showing his authority. It's like he's looking at them and say, maybe y'all got messed up here. This house belongs to us. And he says, do not make, uh, really it could be translated, as stop making, stop making my father's house a house of trade. And I think it shows once again, that, that is the issue. They've made it a house of trade. D.A. Carson writes, instead of solemn dignity and the murmur of prayer, there's the bellowing of cattle and the bleeding of sheep. Instead of brokenness and contrition, holy adoration and prolonged petition, there is noisy commerce. Is there an application for us in this? I think so. Just a couple of points though before I mention it. Unlike the Jewish temple, there's nothing, there's nothing special about this room. I like it. I'm very thankful for it. Uh, most would call it a sanctuary. It's the Latin term from "for holy." I'm not. I'm not crazy about that term, and the reason why is because the room is not holy. It, really, it's the people, the people of God, the church, are holy. I, I, I like the term auditorium. You can call it whatever. Call it the big house. I don't know what you call it. There's nothing special about that. And yet at the same time, I will say this, the church gathers to worship in this large room and that makes it special. This is the gathering of the church. This is the gathering of God's people. So you say, well, Jeff, it sounds like you're speaking like two different sides of your mouth, and I am. At least I'm admitting to it. But there is something special about this in our gathering of the saints, of course, in our service, and that means either this tonight, which if you can come, please come, or, or this morning, it's special. It's supposed to be. There's certain things we're not going to do here at Grace Church. Uh, we're not going to sell Grace Church merchandise off to the side here. We're not going to have a comedy routine up front before we get started. Dancing bears. And I, I, I mock that because, but believe it or not, there are churches out there that do this kind of stuff. And it's just, It's ridiculous. Number two, we're we're not, our morning announcements, we're going to intentionally limit those. We could give more, and there's much important things to say, once again, about the different ministries. But the reason why is we want to primarily devote our services to worship the Lord as a body, Uh, give ourselves to the Word of God, get ourselves to prayer. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 puts it this way. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for God is a consuming fire. Question, when you come to grace, do you have a sense of reverence when you come in? I'm not saying are you buttoned up and wearing just the right things. No, no, I'm just saying is that by the time when we get into the study of the word and we're singing and do you feel like God is with us? not because it's about feeling but the point of it is is that God is with us in a special way when we gather as the body of Christ. And so in likewise fashion we want to make sure uh, as elders we want to make sure as the body of Christ that we are we're worshiping him and we're doing it right. And we confess when we don't. You may see me sometimes out front and you might think is he talking to himself again? I'm not. I'm praying, and sometimes it's, Lord, Lord, confess, I can't get this out of my head. I cannot, I'm not worshiping you rightly. Not that somehow I need to impress God. No, but I know it's good for me, and I know it's honoring to him. So, yeah, there's a lot of application for us in this. And the question you could also ask yourself, is Christ out of control here? I mean, this looks out of control. <laughs> Please don't do this. Remember, he's God, he's righteous, we are sinners. As a friend of mine used to say, never call God to the bar of human reasoning. Don't say, oh, that's not right. You're a clay dirt uh, person here telling God what is right and what is good. You can't do that. Uh, No, and by the way, just as a... If you're looking for good evidence that this is not out of control, the Antonia Fortress was built right next door to the temple. The Romans built it, and they built it literally right next door, whereby they could keep an eye on Jewish practices. If this was becoming a riot or uprising, they would have been called. You never see them in any of these passages. Um, then you think, well, what about that whip of cords? That sounds kind of distressing, well, keep in mind, it's interesting, uh, the same term, that word cords, that same term is describing ropes in Acts 27, verse 32. But I guess what Jesus did is people would come in with their animals, they would just throw the rope on the ground as they would sacrifice the animal. Uh, no reason to have the rope again. And he just grabbed a few of those and he began to twist them and tie them. And he had a whip of ropes Probably not leather, because that same term is used in Acts 27 to describe ropes. You may wonder, why wasn't he arrested? This would seem like something that would cause him to be arrested. Well, number one, it wasn't his time, most importantly. But also, there seems to be general disapproval with selling in the court of the Gentiles. People were not happy with Caiaphas. I mean, some were, obviously. But some of them were like, this isn't right. This has become a stockyard. The, part of the, temple is, the temple complex is part of a stockyard now. This is not right. So the disciples remember later on this phrase, zeal for your house will consume me. That is from Psalm 69 verse nine. Uh, remember, David is writing it at that particular time and he's saying zeal for the house of God consumes me. And if it's true for David, guess what? It's also true for his descendant, Jesus Christ, especially true for him. You see, Christ's zeal for right worship of God, literally in the Greek, consumes him, mean it eats him. When you consume something, you eat it, right? That's the phrase. It eats him. Warren Wearsby says it really well. He says this, when Jesus cleansed the temple, what did he do? He declared war on the hypocritical religious leaders. And this ultimately led to his death. Indeed, his zeal for God's house did eat him up. And we would say further, he gave himself up for that. So verse 18 through 20, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show, uh, rather, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? So when they ask him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? What are they saying? Give us a sign that you, Jewish carpenter, have the authority to disrupt our practice. Why doesn't Jesus agree to a sign have you ever noticed that, not just in John, but in the other, the other gospels? They'll say, show us a sign, and he never agrees to that. He never does. Well, I like what Carson says again. He says, a sign, if he were to give them a sign that would satisfy them, presumably some sort of miraculous display performed on demand would have signaled the domestication of God. You're not gonna tell God what to do. This is God. He's going to tell you what to do. Uh, continuing on, uh, cleansing the temple was the sign. That's so funny, is that they demand a sign, and he just probably was looking around like, I just showed it to you. This is prophecy fulfilled according to Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 and 3. It says this The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to the temple. And he suddenly did. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi, meaning the priesthood, and refine them like gold and silver. Now he didn't refine them that day, but the process began that day. So finally, when you get into the book of Acts, you actually have priests that are obedient to the faith. What happened? The Lord purified them. He says, destroy this temple in three days and I will raise it up. What was Jesus referring to? Well, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in the second cleansing, or perhaps the first, depending upon how you look at it, he called it the sign of Jonah. He says, as the prophet Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So, What's interesting here is that Christ here is, though, is giving an imperative. Let me give you another word for it. He's giving them a command, destroy this temple. Now, is Christ actually commanding them to destroy the temple or the temple of himself? No, read it again. Destroy this temple and in three days, I'm gonna raise it up. What he's giving them is he's giving them a, a condition. If you destroy it, I will raise it up. That's what he is saying. And you know what makes this so heinous? Do you remember when Jesus was being uh, tried and the false witnesses came forward and what did they say? Uh, This man said that I will destroy this temple. Do you ever see Jesus saying, I will destroy this temple? No. They're false witnesses. Jesus never said, I. He actually, he gave the implied you. You destroy the temple, and I'm going to raise it up. That's what he was saying. And then they said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. Now, once again, this is a rubbables temple, now hundreds of years old. And so, what they're really saying, it's taken 46 years to refurbish this. We've been at this for 46 years. Josephus, uh, the uh, Jewish historian, said work began on the temple on the 18th year of Herod the Great's reign, which would be 19 B.C. So the year was 27, 28 A.D. Uh, When was the temple refurbished completely? A.D. 63. Just seven years, they would have a refurbished, completely refurbished temple before what? The Romans destroyed it in A.D. 70. So, I would actually give you another way to look at it, can I? You see, he may not be, they may not be saying it has taken 46 years to build this temple. I think what they're really saying is this temple was built 46 years ago. Why do you think that, Jeff? Glad you asked. First off, that verb, build, it's not the imperfect. And I know... Please don't turn me off here. This is a little bit, oh, uh, difficult. But the imperfect is a past action with ongoing aspect. I was running. I was running. That's imperfect. That's not the term used here. The verb is actually an aorist. I ran. I ran. Daniel Wallace, who's much smarter than I am and and Greek scholar at Dallas Seminary, he says, based on grammatical, linguistic, historical grounds what he's what they're saying is this temple was built 46 years ago and you're going to rebuild it in 3 days you can take either one of those translations and be fine but another reason why i think that is correct not only because of the verbiage but also what jesus and what they are saying they're using this word temple in the greek it's naos naos only referred to the holy place and 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 holy of holies that's the only part of the temple referred to if you wanted to refer to the whole temple complex you would use the word hiron, not naos but Huron. which word do you think Jesus is saying here when he refers to himself he's referring he's using this word naos the place of the holy of holies the special presence of god and Jesus is saying destroy the special presence of God, I will build it in three days. I will rebuild it in three days. That's the term used there, not Huron, not whole temple complex, but himself. So I think that's what he is saying. Either way, once again, I don't wanna die on either hill too much, but it's important to know that, hey, he's gonna rebuild it. He didn't ever say that he would destroy himself. He's challenging them. You destroy me, three days later, I'm going to come back, right back. Verse 21 and 22, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So it's interesting, the disciples didn't get it either. How many times does Jesus say things and no one really gets it? <laughs> not because of Jesus, but because of themselves. So when it says he was speaking about the temple of his body, uh, you might say in a real snarky way, why didn't he just say my body? Why does he use this language? Why does Jesus sometimes use symbolic language so that his enemies can't understand? Why does he do that? The Bible gives us two reasons Why? Especially when it's referring to, oh, the seed that fell into the different types of soil, rocky ground and the thorny, and then some of another one where the birds pick it up, and the others finally we have good soil. And, and they finally ask Jesus, why do you, why do you speak uh, just not clear language to your enemies? And he tells them, first reason is for judgment. Matthew 13, 15, lest they, meaning his enemies, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. And so Jesus says, I'm intentionally not being specific. Why? Because they may hear and believe, and that's not going to be the case with my enemies. Judgment. There's another aspect of it is mercy, though mercy on his enemies? Yeah, listen to this. 2 Peter 2.21, it would have been better, this is the enemies of Christ, it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. More light, more judgment. Less light, less judgment. Now, be careful. Don't think, well, this is this might be helpful. I won't bring my rebellious son to church anymore. He'll get less light. Now you see the problem with that is because number one, you're disobeying scripture. And number two, God uses the word of God to save people. So, God is going to give our Jesus in particular is going to show mercy and he's going to show judgment. And it doesn't end there. Verse 23 through 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Now, at first you say, many believed. Oh, good. That's fantastic. I don't think that's what's going on there. Uh, you see, sometimes John does this. He'll say many believed, and then he'll talk later on that they never continued on with Christ. He does this much in John 6. As a matter of fact, in the Greek it reads this. Many believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not believe in them. That's that word, in trust. It's the same, same exact word that was in the previous word for believe. Why wouldn't Jesus believe in them if they believed in him? Well, as we'll see in just a moment, what did they believe about Jesus, first off? But secondly, he says, it says, he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he knew what was in man. The reason why he does not reckon these people as true disciples is because he knows what's the heart, he knows the hearts. 1 Kings 8.39, Solomon says, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind. He knew that some of their hearts were stony, others were thorny. These are not true people. Now, what do I mean by that? Be careful. For some of you that have always struggled with, am I truly a believer? You know who I'm talking about. And you really are, but you have these continuous doubts, Okay. I would say actually, it's maybe a good sign that you have doubts. Perhaps the Lord is convicting you of areas, but at the same time, we as believers need to trust when Jesus says, He who believes has eternal life. So, what's happening here? Let me quote a couple of guys. Uh, a guy named Tasker writes in the Gospel according to St. John, he writes, Christ regarded all belief in him as superficial, i.e., not real which does not have as its most essential elements the consciousness of the need for forgiveness and the conviction that he alone is the mediator of that forgiveness. So do you just love Jesus because he's a miracle worker? Or as Tommy Nelson used to say to us in college, which was greatly convicting for me regarding Christ, is Jesus nothing more than the one who greases the wheels of your train of success? Is that what Jesus is to you? If that's the case, I don't think he's your Jesus. You've created him in your own image. Piper puts it this way. John Piper says, what it says in essence is that Jesus knows what is in every heart. And so he can see when someone believes in a way that is not really believing. In other words, Jesus' ability to know every heart perfectly leads to the unsettling truth that some believe is not the kind of belief that obtains fellowship with Jesus and eternal life. Some belief is not saving belief. What did the people, what did the Jews see about Jesus? This guy takes the bull by the horns. I mean, perhaps even literally. He he stands up against Caiaphas. This guy turns water into wine. I love that he will be a political Messiah or he will be my personal savior and he just fixes things for me in life. Have you submit to him as Lord? Is he the one who took away your sin? Is he the one that you follow? Stumblingly, yes, but that's a believer. It's a big difference. We'll conclude with the question, is Christ still cleaning house in the temple? Is he still doing that today? And if so, what what is that temple called? We're looking at it. It's the temple is the church. What's interesting though is there's actually two temples in regards to the church. There's the local church and the individual believer. Do you know that? So let me give you the phrase of the local church. When we gather together the body, we are the temple of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 3, this is not a Texas dialect. It's just what the English says. But sadly, in English, we only use the word you. But there actually is y'all. Praise the Lord for that. <laughs> First Corinthians 3, 16, 17. This is what Paul was saying. Please try to see it without a Texas accent. Do y'all know that y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in y'all? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and y'all are that people. Or perhaps if you're from the north, you might say uh, that you guys are that temple. I don't know. So we are the temple of God today. Does the Lord still clean house among us? Oh, yes, he does. Even though that we are now righteous in his sight because of of the blood of Jesus, we still are sinners. We still struggle with sin. And so in 1 Peter 4, as the church was dealing with persecution, Peter just tells them, hey, it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. That means God is going to continue to refine us in ways that makes us look more like the son, Jesus Christ. Praise his name for it, even as we go through hard times as a church. So the congregation is the temple. What else is the temple? The individual believer. And so what we would say is that live as the temple of the Lord. The Lord. Is your sin today interfering with your service as the temple of the Lord? 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought at a price. So glorify God in your body. Is Christ still cleaning house with us individually? You betcha he is. And praise his name for it. He doesn't leave us alone. I know some days we wish he would, but we really don't. 2 Corinthians 7, 1, Paul can say by inspiration of the Spirit, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So with the help of the Holy Spirit today, who's actually doing it through us, check your life. Is Christ acting as head over your life? Or is it you? Who's driving the car of your life today? Jesus is not your co-pilot. He should be the one in the front seat driving. C.S. Lewis writes it this way in Mere Christianity, and hopefully you'll find it encouraging. He says the following, imagine yourself as a living house God comes in to rebuild that house at the point of salvation, justification. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He is getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that these jobs needed doing and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. <laughs> Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You see, you thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. And behold, he does. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we're thankful for the temple of God that is, in Jesus, that is Jesus Christ himself. And yet, Lord, even now, in this lifetime, you, has, you have called us individually, but also as a collective body of Christ, that we would be the temple of God. Indeed, not that we would be, we are. The Holy Spirit resides in us today. And so, Father, help us to remember that as we engage in life as we deal with sin or perhaps as we ignore sin today. Lord, help us to walk as children of light as you have called us. And we will thank you in Jesus' name, amen.